Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It, it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth. Darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. <laughs> and then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. Back in October, we featured an interview with Duke University's Mike Krzyzewski, better known as Coach K, and I promised at the end of that episode that come March Madness, I would devote an episode to the words and wisdom of another legendary college basketball coach. Some might call him the college basketball coach, the archetype, the one who inspired the next generation of coaches, including Mike Krzyzewski the one who won more NCAA championships than any other. The first one voted into the Basketball Hall of Fame twice, once as a player and once as a coach. John Wooden. The definition I coined for success is peace of mind, attained only through self-satisfaction in knowing you made the effort to become the best of which you're capable. Now, we're all equal there. We're not all equal as far as intelligence is concerned. We're not equal as far as size. We're not equal as far as appearance. We do not all have the same opportunities. We're not born in the same environments. But we're all absolutely equal in having the opportunity to make the most of what we have, not comparing or worrying about what others have. This is What It Takes, a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler, and I am keeping my promise. I think UCLA fans in particular could use the healing balm of a Coach Wooden episode to help them think about the glory days when the Bruins were mighty, and it was just a given that they would play in the NCAA tournament. But if Coach Wooden were alive today, he would never berate the current team. He was far too gentlemanly for that. I imagine he would give them compassionate and firm words and a reminder of the cornerstones of his famous pyramid of success. And he might make them all sit on the bench in their bare feet. The first day uh, that you go to play for Coach Wooden, he tells you about how to put your socks on. And the reason that he does that is because his system requires that, that you do everything on the run. That is the voice of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one of the greatest NBA players of all time, and like John Wooden, a member of the Academy of Achievement. You don't jog through things. You have to run full speed. And um, the wear and tear on your feet is immediate and intense. And if your socks aren't on right, uh, if you have like uh, a ridge and that you're running over in your, in your sock, you're going to get a blister, and then you won't be able to practice. And if you don't practice for Coach Wooden, you don't play. So he was telling everybody how to survive his system and get through it without coming up with blisters on their feet. Wooden's interview with the Academy was recorded in 1996, when he was 85 years old. He was long retired at that point, but still living by the aphorisms 
that he passed on to his students for more than four decades. Many of his favorites originated with his dad. Uh, like Mark Twain, when I was young, I probably didn't appreciate my father at all, but in thinking back to some of the things that, uh, that he did that became so meaningful, which he didn't realize at the time. Uh, for example, he tried to get across to us, never try to be better than someone else. Learn from others and never cease trying to be the best you can be at whatever you're doing. It don't make a difference what it is, just try to be the best you can possibly be. If you get yourself uh, too engrossed or concerned in regard to the things over which you have no control, it's going to adversely affect the things over which you have control. And then when I graduated from the small country grade school in the eighth grade, he gave me this little card, and he, all he said was, son, try to live up to this. And on one side was a verse that said, uh, Four things a man must learn to do if he would make his life more true, to think without confusion clearly, to love his fellow man sincerely, to act from honest motives purely, to trust in God and heaven securely. And on the other side was a seven-point creed that I say I've tried to live up to. I haven't, but I'm weak times. And one was be true to yourself, help others, make friendship a fine art, uh, Drink deeply from good books. Make each day your masterpiece. Build a shelter against a rainy day by the life you live. And uh, give thanks for your blessings and pray for guidance every day. Well, just graduated from the eighth grade. That little card, somehow, somehow, I kept it with me until it completely worn out. But I have it. I carry it around in a card, the same thing now, and always have it with me. Not the one that the original that Dad gave me because it just simply wore out. But my, my father was a good person. And, and uh, I owe so much to my dad. John Wooden was born in the basketball-obsessed state of Indiana in 1910. It was a pretty hard-scrabble kind of life, but he wasn't aware of it at the time. I grew up on a farm. We lost the farm in the Depression the year I was a freshman in high school, and then we moved into this little town, Martinsville. But while on the farm, where we had no running water and uh, no electricity, and practically everything we ate, we grew. And and I, when I think back of my poor mother, uh, it was must have been extremely difficult. But we didn't think it was tough. There wasn't television. There wasn't radio to speak of, a little radio. Uh, we didn't have it, but there was. And... Uh, we read more. Dad would read to us in the evenings. Uh, we, I know he read the Bible every day and insisted that we did, and, but he read poetry to us. I can still remember him, him reading Hiawatha, By the Shores of Getchagumi, By the Shining Big Sea Water, Live the Big Bob of Nokomis, Daughter. I can just remember that and, and one of the other things. And that uh, encouraged my love for poetry, which I always loved, and probably the back of why that all, all um, four sons uh, there were no athletic scholarships in those days, and mother and dad didn't have financial means to help. But all four sons got out of college. They, they worked their way through all of them, and, uh, and either majored or minored all of them in English. Wooden started playing basketball in his little country grade school. It was just what you did if you grew up in Indiana. Indiana's crazy over basketball, in some ways too crazy. But we went to the championship game of the state tournament all three of my years in high school, got the very last game. And we, we lost it twice and won it once. Uh, this little town at that time had 4,800 people, 
and yet they had built the gymnasium the year before I entered high school that seated 5,200, and it was always full. And that's amazing for uh, people. People don't believe me when I tell them about that here in California. Californians just don't believe that, but it's true. Despite his deep, deep Indiana roots, Wooden surprised journalist Irv Drasnan during this interview when he said that basketball actually wasn't his first love. Baseball was always my first love. That's my favorite sport. But uh, basketball, to me, is the greatest spectator sport, and, and for a number of reasons. It's played with the largest object. The basketball is larger. It's, uh, the spectators are closer to the action. Uh, they can follow the ball. You can't always follow the baseball or the puck or the football, but you can follow the basketball. And it's a fast game. It's a game of action. And I think it is the best of all the spectator sports. It's a team game. Uh, uh, I'm concerned about the basketball today somewhat. I think it's becoming too much showmanship. And I don't like that. If I want showmanship, I'll go see the Globetrotters. And, and that's what I go for. Wooden was secure in his own beliefs about basketball and about life. He could not have cared less about conventional wisdom. And that often made him tack left when everyone else was tacking right. Perhaps in my coaching experience, I found out from my, my own personal playing experience that I didn't have as much size as many, but I was quicker than, than most all. And that was my strength. So in my recruiting and all the years when I became a college coach, I'm recruiting for quickness. Now, you, you want a certain amount of size, and, and, but more coaches will give up some quickness to get more size. I would not. I would give up some size to get more quickness. I, I wanted, I hoped my forwards would be quicker than opposing forwards. I hoped that my guards would be uh, quicker than opposing guards. I hoped my postmen would be uh, quicker than opposing postmen. And, and that's what I'm looking for. And then I'm trying to incorporate that in making it into a team game. God, it is such a team game. It's a beautiful game when it's played as a team. To me, it's not beautiful when it's individual and one working one-on-one and going in and making a fancy dunk. Uh, and that, that isn't pretty to me. That, that, that may be what most of the fans seem to love, but I don't. He may have been against individualism on the court, but off the court was another story altogether. If you show the, those under your supervision, you really, really care for them, and that uh, you're interested in the group as a whole, but also as them individually. As my, one of my favorite coaches, Samus Alonzo Stagg, once said, he never had a player he did not love. He had many he didn't like and didn't respect, but he loved them just the same. I hope my players know that I loved them all. Uh, there are times I didn't like them. There are times I didn't like my own children, but it never had anything to do with my love for them. Uh, and you can't fool these kids. You should. It should be your responsibility to, to uh, lead them in a way that's going to be beneficial to them all their lives, not just through their athletic days. And, and I wanted my players, and tried to get this across to them, when you come on the basketball floor each afternoon, for the next approximately two hours, you are a basketball player. That's all. I'm looking of you and thinking of you as a basketball player. That is all. As soon as practice is over, you are not a basketball player. You are a student at UCLA. And you better keep that in mind. You're a student. That's the reason you're here. Basketball may be, in most of your cases, giving you a scholarship and it's paying your way. If you start putting basketball ahead of your academics, you're not going to have either very long. At least you won't have here. Uh, so uh, I think that 
that that must be stressed because it, it should be the student athlete, not the athlete student. Again, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Geez, there's so many things that I, I, I learned from Coach Wooden uh, that had nothing to do with sports. Coach Wooden really um, made us think about things beyond just playing basketball. I, I started out as an English major, and Coach Wooden, I could talk to him about whether to use uh, colon or semicolon, when to use parentheses, uh, what was appropriate, like or as. He wanted us to graduate. He was just like a parent, uh, a strict parent. He, he wanted us to do well. He was not someone that was just there to exploit us as athletes. And I have a lot of respect and undying love for, for Coach Wooden for, for that reason. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of, uh, my years at UCLA, and most people think, well, because winning championships, that practically all my players graduated, and most of them in four years, when most students today are taking five, and the fact that most of my players are, have done well in whatever profession they've chosen. Some 30 of my players uh, became attorneys, uh, dentists, lawyers, eight ministers, teachers, uh, just in all professions, but it doesn't make any difference what the profession has been. Uh, very few of the players I've had have been have failed to be successful. Practically all of them have been successful reasonably. And I don't necessarily mean material-wise, but they've been successful in, in whatever profession they chose, and that makes me very proud. It's a pretty startling statement coming from one of the greatest college coaches of all time in any sport. But while the rest of the world watched UCLA games and thought of him as a high-powered molder of teams, John Wooden always considered himself a teacher. That's all he said, a teacher. I was just teaching basketball rather than English. But you have a, a it's different. In, in my English, I, I had them under uh, mental and to some degree emotional. In basketball or sports, I have a mental, emotional, and physical. It's, um, I love to teach English. I would have always loved to have taught English. But um, you get closer to those under your supervision in sports. They, they, be, they become almost like your children. They're closest to you. Next to your own flesh and blood, you get very close to them. Their joys are your joys. Their sorrows are your sorrows. And, and that goes on forever. It doesn't end when they leave your supervision. That, that's with you forever. Hardly a day goes by that I don't get a call or a letter from someone who was under my supervision in the past, going back to my very first years at UCLA, going back to when I was at Indiana State, some even going back when I taught in high school. Wooden said that the person who influenced him most as a teacher was Piggy Lambert, his college basketball coach, back when he was a student at Purdue University. And he credited his wife, Nell, his childhood sweetheart and one and only love, for almost everything else. But it was his high school math teacher, Lawrence Scheidler, who set him on a path toward developing his distinctive view of success, a view that would permeate everything he ever taught his students. One time he had us define success in class. Uh, seems that seems funny, and maybe if a math teacher doing that, you would think that might be an English teacher. Or uh, I never forgot about that, the different definitions that various ones have. And then after I had graduated from Purdue and entered the teaching profession, 
I became a little bit disillusioned with what parents seemed to expect from their youngsters, an A or a B. And if they didn't get an A or a B, and in one way or another, uh, maybe subtly, but they, they would make the youngster or the teacher feel that they had failed. They seemed to be very happy if the neighbor's children got C's, of course, they were average, but for their own. And I didn't understand that then. I had, uh, was very young and, and didn't quite, as I, as I got older and had children, I only understand it a little better, but uh, uh, I didn't like that way of, of judging any more than I like even then the way they judge athletic coaches and teams. They use the winning percentage there, and, and that's not an accurate way of judging a success. So I wanted to come up with something of myself, of my own and I think there were three things that entered into it. One was Mr. Scheidler's class when we discussed success and, and came up with our own definitions. Then my dad about never trying to be better than someone else, learn from others, and never cease trying to do the best you could be. And then about that time, I ran across a verse and always being interested in verse that, that makes a point. Just one little simple said, at God's footstool to confess, a poor soul knelt and bowed his head. I failed, he cried. The master said, thou didst thy best. That is success. I think those things, more than anything else, uh, accounted for my own definition. He came up with his own definition in 1934. He was 24 years old, but it was carefully considered and it's the definition he stuck with for the rest of his life. I played it for you at the beginning of this episode, but it bears repeating now. Peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction in knowing you made the effort to become the best of which you're capable. A few years after settling on his definition of success, John Wooden started working on his famous pyramid of success. He refined and tweaked it for the next 14 years, but with his definition always perched firmly at the top. To this day, other coaches and even business leaders rely on Wooden's Pyramid as a model. The first two blocks that I chose were the cornerstones. And if any structure is to have any strength or solidity, you better have a strong foundation. And of course, the, uh, the cornerstones anchor the foundation. And one cornerstone is industriousness and the other one is enthusiasm. I think you have to work hard in whatever you're doing. If you're looking for the shortcut, the trick, the easy way, you can get by perhaps for a while, but you won't be strengthening the talents that lie within you. And and then the other enthusiasm. If you don't like what you're doing, how can the world can you do the best of which you're capable? You, you can't reach your own particular level of competency Unless you enjoy it, unless you're enthusiastic about it. You may be talented, but, and you may be better than somebody else, but if it's not near your own level of competency, you're not really succeeding. Those blocks just stand out. I never changed them. And through the 14 years, next 14 years, when I worked on the various blocks, I had a lot of ideas. I discarded some. I put something in their place. I moved the position within the structure of some but I never changed the cornerstones. They still remain constant, and I still believe that they are the cornerstones for success. Between industriousness and enthusiasm at the foundation lie friendship, loyalty, and cooperation. Then we work up to the very top of being competitive greatness. That's the, 
That's the last block. Well, how do you become that? By being industrious and enthusiastic and being conditioned and having the skills and being imbued with consideration for others and so on. So they lead up. And these things lead up below the top block I have poise and confidence. Well, how do you gain poise? By being prepared. How do you get prepared? By being industrious, by being enthusiastic and so these others. So it, it, it leads up to, the, in, to my way of thinking. You know, in the mid-30s, about the time I was started and had coined my definition, I was working on this, I, I ran across a couple of things that, that would st have stayed with me always. One was a, 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 some lady was asked, a lady teacher, been teaching for many years and asked what she taught. And uh, she later wrote some things down and she said, they ask me why I teach and I reply. Where could I find such splendid company? There sits a statesman, strong, unbiased, wise, another later Webster, silver-tongued. A doctor sits beside him, upward rise. No, see, a doctor sits beside him, whose quick, steady hand may mend a bone or stem the lifeblood's flow. And there a builder, upward rise the arches of that church he builds, wherein that minister may speak the word of God and love lead a stumbling soul to touch the Christ. And all about a gathering of teachers, nurses, laborers, those who work and vote and build and plan and pray into a great tomorrow. And I say, I may, I, I may not uh, see uh, the, 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 the church or, or hear the word or eat the food. Their hands may grow, and yet again I may. And later I may say, I knew him once, and he was weak or strong or bold or proud or gay. I knew him once, but then he was a boy. They ask me why I teach, and I reply, where could I find such splendid company? And as a teacher, you see that. You see these youngsters. Now, I saw that all those in my English classes. I saw a youngster become an admiral in the Navy. I saw them become doctors and dentists, and just all different professions. And whether you do it, did really or not, you like to feel, maybe I helped him a little, maybe I did. John Wooden loved the company he kept, and he tells a story about having to make a difficult choice early on in his career to stick up for one of his loved ones. It was his first year coaching at Indiana State, and his team was invited to the national tournament. Wooden declined. I had a, a, a um, Afro-American boy on my team. He wasn't a starter. He was probably the 12th man on a 12-man team. He didn't get to play very much, but he was a member of our team, and he'd, he'd been dressed for every game, was with us in every game, and they did not permit black players to play in the, in the national NAIA tournament at that particular time, so I refused the uh, invitation because of that. Now, the next year, we had a better year. We'd had a good year the year before, but the next year, we have a really better year. And we're invited again, and I refused. But uh, through this youngster's parents and through uh, the NAACP, they felt it would be a good thing. And it might open the doors, in a sense. And um, I was persuaded to do that, to take him. He couldn't stay in the hotel, in the Mubach Hotel, with us, he could eat in the Mulebach Hotel if we ate in a private room. He couldn't eat in the dining room, in a private room. So we had our meals in a private room. He stayed with a minister and his wife, a black minister and his wife, in Kansas City. We stopped some places in Illinois, maybe to eat. They won't let him in. They take us all or you don't take any. And then we go someplace else and get some things and take out. But 
uh, it's good that times have changed. And I, I, I'm proud of the fact that I think in some ways maybe I helped bring about some changes. There's way too much uh, prejudice in this world, not just in race, relig religion, and other ways. There's anything anyone can do to help it, even if it's just a little, that's good. Because there are a lot of us, and everyone would help just a little, that could be a whole lot. It's like we are many, but are we much? We're not much until we all contribute to some degree. Wooden's principled stance, he says, was rooted in those early teachings he got from his dad. In one way or another, he tried to teach us that and, and you're as good as anybody, but you're no better than anybody. Don't expect privileges at all in any way. And, and never uh, looked on, and on anyone for any, any reason at all, certainly not, not race or religion. He was also able to resist outside pressures because he was quite clear, he said, about the difference between character and reputation. Your character is what you are, and you're the only one that truly knows that. Your reputation is what others perceive you to be, and they can be wrong. So which is the most important? what you really are. It doesn't make any difference what others might think. You'd like for them to think well of you, but it really doesn't make any difference. you just like for them to. But boy, it's very important what you think about yourself. That's very important. I've been asked, does, do athletics build character? And my answer has been consistent. It can, and it can tear it down. It can do either one. It depends on the leadership. I believe that to be true. Uh, I say that in athletics, equal, equal ability, the one with the better character will be the one that will emerge on top. By having better you accept things better, you work harder. Character gives you more peace. And if you have more peace with yourself, you're going to function better. I... I in a way, uh, not probably connected exactly with this, but in, in some other things, when Socrates was falsely imprisoned, facing imminent and unjust death, he, he was at ease. Uh, there was such tranquility about him that uh, his jailers, who were mean, mean, maybe the meanest people of the day, they couldn't understand it. And they said, why aren't you preparing for death? And Socrates' answer was simply, I've been preparing for death all my life, for the life I've led. If you have character, you're at peace, at ease with yourself, therefore you're going to have poise and you're going to function near your particular level of competency. It's a principle he practiced on the basketball court while clenching a rolled-up program, as he always, always did. When coaches are complaining about pressure, I don't buy that at all. I, I don't buy it at all. Uh, do you think a salesman doesn't have pressure? you think a barber doesn't have pressure? You don't cut all the hair in town. The butcher doesn't sell all the meat in town. A salesman, if you don't do a good job, <laughs> there'll be somebody else in your spot. So how about a surgeon performing delicate surgery? Oh, my goodness. There's far more pressure than, in, yeah, than a coach is going to have on. And the only pressure that amounts to a hill of beans is the pressure one puts on oneself. And you better put pressure on yourself. If you're not putting pressure on yourself, you're cheating. You're cheating yourself, you're cheating those under whose supervision you are, you're cheating others. So, but if you are affected by outside pressures, that's a weakness. 
if you let, as a coach, if you let the media affect you, if you let the alumni affect you, if you let the parents affect you, they're going to keep you from doing what you think is proper and right and correct. You should know better than they. You're, you're, this is your profession. You're working at it every day. You see these players every day. You see them together. You should know more about it. And I think that somehow I was brought up to not let those things bother me. I'm not saying you don't feel them. You don't like to be criticized. No one likes to be criticized. And, and I didn't like to be criticized. But at the same time, you got to accept it and do what you think is right and not let outside criticism sway you. But at the same time, don't be stubborn. You can be wrong, you know. We're all imperfect. True enough. But John Wooden came pretty darn close to perfection as a coach, judging by UCLA's record under his leadership. When he arrived in 1948, basketball was low priority. The team had just two hoops to practice on, no private locker room, not even a dedicated gym. They had to share it with other teams practicing other sports. But by the early 60s, he'd turned the Bruins program around. Since we're talking about sports here, I've got to lay some numbers on you. In Wooden's 29 years as head coach at UCLA, the team won 664 out of 826 games. They did not lose a single season. They took home a jaw-dropping 10 national championships during a 12-year span. The first one was in 1964, the next in 65. And those teams were not big, by which I mean tall. No, they're probably, uh, height-wise, they're probably the... Uh the shortest teams to ever win, and I suspect now probably the shortest teams that ever will win, as far as height-wise is concerned. But <laughs> size isn't always the answer at all, and uh, it was proven by those two teams. But they, they came together real well, and, and he, he, players accepted their roles. I think coaches today are having a little more trouble getting players to accept roles today, and, and that makes it a little more difficult. But those did. They were strong. Maybe there were some other teams that might have been individually better, but as a unit, these were two very, very strong teams. So what was the key to getting his players to accept their roles and work as a team? Wooden laid it out during his interview with the Academy of Achievement. I tried to explain to my players that every person has a role and every role is important. Now, you may not hardly get in the game, but your role is helping develop these players that are going to play more. And that's extremely important. And I like to use with them, use, sort of keep this in mind, I will get ready, and then perhaps my chance will come. Now, if you're not ready and your chance comes, when is it going to come again? It might not come again at all. So always think in terms, I will get ready. Uh, it is, is a powerful engine in an automobile more important than a wheel? What can you do if you lose a wheel? What good is that engine if you lose a wheel? What, what good is that wheel if you lose a nut that holds it on? You don't have it. So you may be just a nut. You may be just a wheel, and you may be a powerful engine. But you, if you're not all together and on the same page, uh, we're not going to accomplish uh, what we're capable of accomplishment. And, and now, I don't say it's easy to get them to accept the rules, but you've got to practices, for example, you've got to pay attention to the players that aren't getting to play very much. 
the, the players that are getting to play a lot, they're, they're, they get praised in the papers. They've got the alumni patting them on the back and all that. These others, they're not getting that. You have to give it in practice. That's why in some ways I think I became a little closer from a personal point of view with some of my players that didn't get to play very much than I would my stars. It's just because they're not getting to play that much. You still care for them just as much as the one that's playing more. John Wooden was a tender-hearted man, but he was notoriously strict with his players about their appearance and their personal behavior on and off the court. Never criticize a teammate. Never. Never criticize a teammate. That, that's, that's unpardonable. That's my job. I'm paid for it. Pitifully poor, I would tell them, but I'm paid for it. But don't you do it. And um, like, no word of profanity or you're off the floor for the day. No excuse for that. No excuse for that. That, that. Now that, in turn, to me, will help them maintain self-control. And the maintaining of self-control is going to make them a better basketball player. It's more than just the use of profanity, although I don't want it at all. So I, I think those things, are think about the little things, those, those are little things that I think help bring big things about. He demanded that players keep their hair cut short no more than two inches. And this was during the counterculture movements of the 1960s and 70s, so it was no easy task. Bill Walton tells a story about how, after winning three College Player of the Year awards, he got a little cocky. When he got back from summer vacation, he came into the first practice with bushy hair and a beard, and he told Coach Wooden that he had no right to make him change it. Coach Wooden said, You're right, Bill, I don't but I do decide who plays and who doesn't. And that was that. During the Academy's conversation with John Wooden, journalist Irv Drasnan asked how he handled strong-willed players. Wooden took exception to the word handled. It was another revealing moment. Uh, you made an interesting uh, statement there. You said, how do you handle those players? I can tell you a little story on that's always sort of meaningful to me. When Wilt Chamberlain came to the Lakers, I was invited to a press conference announcing this. And uh, in the press conference, uh, one member of the press asked Wilt, said, do you think that Bill Van Bredikoff can handle you? Bill Van Bredikoff was the coach of the Lakers at the time. And Wilt said, no one handles me. I am a person, not a thing. You handle things, you work with people. I think I can work with anyone. Just prior to this, my coaching book, Practical Modern Basketball, had been published, and I had a section in this book entitled Handling Your Players. I left this meeting, came home, and took my book and marked out, crossed out, handling your players, but working with your players. And any place that I had alluded to handling your players, I changed. I called the publisher and wanted that correction made for any future editions. So you have to work with them. I think any person in any, in any business, any person of leadership, those under your supervision, must be made to feel they're working with you, not for you. Otherwise, they'll just punch the clock in and out, and that's it. Think about the images you carry in your head about how a coach behaves and talks to players in the locker room. John Wooden didn't do or say any of those things. He didn't try to get his players all pumped up before a big game. He didn't tell them they had to win. And he wasn't disappointed when they lost, if he believed everyone on the team was doing his best and working together. He worked with them, and you might say he worked for them, to help them become the best 
most successful people they could be, whether they went pro or never played again. Coach John Wooden. He died in 2010 at the age of 99. I'm Alice Winkler, and this is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement. Funding for the Academy of Achievement, as always, comes generously from the Katherine B. Reynolds Foundation.